For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For me today, we have a feast of scripture. This morning's group of texts present the preacher with a unique situation. It is rare that a set of lectionary readings, including the psalm, will complement each other as perfectly as our texts do this morning. But it gives us a wonderful opportunity to see the miraculous continuity found in these different genres of texts written over a period of hundreds of years and how each of these passages speak of forgiveness and judgment, of the synergistic relationship between the act of human forgiveness and the experience of God's forgiveness. Let's start with what I think is the hardest text, the passage which contains the parable of the unforgiving servant. It begins with Peter asking Jesus, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus' reply is 70 times seven. Well, the exact number, it's considered a perfect number in the Greek. The point of the number is that your forgiveness must be beyond counting. And with this extravagant number, Jesus continues with an even more extravagant story. It is important to understand when interpreting this work, this piece of scripture, that this story is a parable. A parable is intended to shock its readers, to wake them up, to get them to pay attention, even perhaps by the absurdity of the story. And such is this one. First, a king calls a servant and asks him to pay back 10,000 talents, an impossible amount, because one talent is the amount that it would take a laborer 20 years to earn, let alone ever be able to pay back as the wicked servant claims he can. But the king listens to his servant's pleas and extravagantly forgives this amount. But then this outrageous amount of debt is set against the very small amount the servant is asked to forgive of a fellow servant. 100 denarii, when a denarii is a payment for the work of one day. By telling the story of a king generously forgiving an impossibly absurd amount of money against the servant's minuscule refusal, Jesus shocks his listeners in understanding the reciprocal need to forgive because of God's enormous forgiveness of us. We are talking about the difference in the amount as 20,000 years of labor versus 100 days. But also, perhaps Jesus wanted to point out to Peter his absurd assumption that he could calculate and measure and limit the practice of forgiveness. What we have then is a parable that forms a vivid picture in our minds of the connection between the act of human forgiveness and our experience of God's infinite forgiveness. But if we are tempted to think by the parable's ending that any unforgiveness we commit will land us in eternal judgment, we are missing the point of the parable. A parable, by the nature of its genre, must be interpreted against the trajectory of the whole of scripture. 
Here the point is not eternal punishment for those redeemed in Jesus Christ who struggle with forgiveness, but a warning that we are to be grateful for the everlasting forgiveness of God and out of the enormous well of love we receive from our Father, we find love for one another. In our reading in Ecclesiastics, Ecclesiasticus, a wisdom book that contains the wisdom of the scribe Sirach, we learn about the effects of unforgiveness. The scribe asks, does anyone, ang- does anyone harbor anger against another and expect to receive healing from the Lord? Psychologists and doctors agree that holding on to our past hurts deeply affects our emotional and our physical health. However, on the other hand, in the act of forgiveness, we cannot deny or minimize our hurt, but hold others accountable, if possible, for their actions. Neither are we asked to forget. Some events and situations must never be forgotten or overlooked. Last week's gospel reading in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, you know the part where it says, a member of, if a member of the church sins against you, you go and point out his fault to him. This passage, I believe, intentionally precedes the parable of the unforgiving servant, a passage which describes the well-known process which emphasizes the community's role in recognizing sin, requiring accountability, and exercising forgiveness. It is a challenging process that involves not only naming the sin, but providing care for the one who has been sinned against by refusing the person who will not repent to remain in their midst. And in that, it describes the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is the act of that each of us are commanded to do, to release one another into the arms of God's forgiveness and to release ourselves, we pray, from the effects of it. Reconciliation takes two or more persons. That is when the sinner acknowledges his sin and asks forgiveness so that the process of healing relationships can begin. And I think this process of accountability is what Paul is describing in our Romans passage, a passage in which he urges believers to not only forgive but seek reconciliation by not judging when possible through the practice of humility. Paul speaks in this passage of matters and actions that should not separate us from each other, matters of diet, for instance. So it would be easy to take this passage out of context and think that Paul is inferring that all matters of disagreement in the body of Christ can be overlooked. We know him too well as someone that values theological truth to think that. Rather, he is encouraging the Christian Romans to live at peace with each other whenever possible, that in our disagreements, large or small, we exercise love, and respect for each other. Paul writes, 
We do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. Paul then denounces the us versus them dynamic so often present in the church by proclaiming the ultimate reality. Whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Our relationship to each other is governed by that reality. We all share together the reality of God's forgiveness unto death. In life and death, we belong to God, and therefore we must strive to dwell in that which unifies us, not which divides us. Rowan Williams, in his book, The Way of St. Benedict, calls the church to read Benedict's rule not primarily as a handbook for personal holiness, but as a handbook for how we are to live with each other, how to live honestly and constructively acquiring tools for living accountably alongside each other and together in the presence of the Lord. Committed life, he says, and this is the important part, matters more than any individual search for spiritual fulfillment. But at the same time, it is that life together that is the solid foundation for growth into intimacy with God, into what people call the mystical. Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servants, the words of wisdom of the scribe and Ecclesiasticus, and Paul's admonition to the Romans teach us much about how we are to forgive and love each other. But now I want to turn to Psalm 103, the beautiful song of worship in which the psalmist sings of what it means to be forgiven and loved by God, a song of one who has clearly experienced and glories in God's provision of grace in his life. And if you would like to even look at the insert in your bulletins as I um, teach about this psalm. There is a Hebrew word repeated throughout this psalm, hesed. Translators have yet to come up with just one rendering which can express all that hesed means. In this psalm, it is rendered in verse 4 as God's loving kindness, in verse 8 as his great goodness, and in verse 11 as his mercy. The whole psalm, in fact, without even naming his said directly, orients itself towards its meaning. When the psalmist sings of all the actions we associate with the Father, his said, God's forgiving, healing, redeeming, crowning, satisfying, and renewing. This past week, Father Rob and I attended the diocesan uh, clergy retreat in the rolling hills of Pennsylvania. At the retreat, Bishop Alec taught three sessions on Psalm 42. For me, the most profound word that he gave us is when he said that while our Christian life does require endurance, patience, and service, we must always remember at heart, this life is a love affair with God. And Psalm 103 is a love song. It begins by invoking the soul that all that is within us must praise his name and not forget his benefits. But while the singer alludes to the depth of God's grace, he also expresses the depth of the human predicament. In verse 7, the psalmist sings, The Lord 
redeems your life from the pit. In this, it is both a psalm of lament and praise. And doesn't our sins and those of those who have sinned against us sometimes make us feel trapped and full of fear that we cannot extricate ourselves from despair? From those things that have hurt us early in life that we continually need to seek healing from. And yet, the predicate expressed is that the Lord crowns you with steadfast love. Here is expressed the future hope of receiving our crowns of glory and mercy. The psalmist again expresses in verse 5 that we live in an imperfect world when he expresses the Lord works vindication and justice for all those who are oppressed. And that in here is the promise that God will ultimately exercise his righteousness and judgment. The psalmist then remembers how God saved the Israelites from the Egyptians, a memory juxtaposed against the memory of their ancestors constructing the idolatrous golden calf when he echoes God's words when Moses came down the mountain a second time in Exodus 34, 6 to 7. This is a creedal phase, a creedal phrase we find throughout the Old Testament. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This psalm is full of remembering. It speaks to the condition that we may not always feel like rejoicing, but it teaches us that while there are times of lament, there, will all, there must always be times of, how, of remembering how God has acted in the history of his people and in our lives. Our acts of remembering can shape our moments of suffering with gratefulness and hope. God knows our frailties. He knows that we are but dust, but he promises his mercy is as high as the heavens. Neglecting to forgive and love each other is not an option for those who receive such love and mercy. Again, we must remember that our life in God is an affair of love. This is why there will be no marriage in heaven, for we will be the bride of Christ, partaking in the marriage feast of the Lamb. The promise our Eucharistic feast today reflects. Enjoy the feast of everlasting love. Amen.